Can you hear me all right? Sorry? Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you perfectly. Hello, I'm Harry Robinson, and this is the All Out Attack podcast. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you for having me on. Today, my guest is Sean Crane, a man who spent almost seven years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Sean maintains that going to prison is the best thing that's ever happened to him, allowing him to turn his life around and become a life coach with his book, Prison of Your Own, coming out in January. Let's do it, man. I'm ready. With the odd technical glitch along the way. Hello. There we go. Sorry about that. (laughs) No worries, man. Hardly the most difficult thing Sean has had to deal with in his life. I sat down with a man willing to bear all in the name of self-help. I hope you enjoy. Right from the beginning, um, because you talked about having quite a a skewed upbringing and, you know, maybe not having the best relationship with your parents or could you talk me through that again and then maybe how that affected you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm from Santa Barbara, California. I'm from paradise, man. I mean, it doesn't get much better than this sunshine year round, the Pacific Ocean. um, It's a beautiful community very uh, affluent you know there's a lot of money in santa barbara it's just it's gorgeous right and beaches i grew up running on the beach playing sports just living the dream um as a kid i had so many cousins around me so many neighborhood friends our neighborhood was quiet and safe we knew everyone it was picture perfect you know and my family is a big family my father is one of nine children and he was close with all of his siblings so i had aunts and uncles everywhere. I had tons of cousins and there was just so much love and support. And we were always together. So growing up, life felt safe and secure and there wasn't, you know, a worry or concern in the world for me. So at about, you know, the age of nine or 10, I started noticing things with my parents though, that were in contrast to my friend's parents or my aunts and uncles. I started noticing the behavior and little things. And as children, we can kind of start to pick up on stuff And we're not really sure how to interpret it, but I knew there was a difference in my parents. And then as I got older, you know, 11, 12, 13, um, it progressed. And I started noticing that they were drinking a lot. They started arguing more and there was a lot of discord in the house. And so I grew up as the oldest of my younger sister and my younger brother, who was the youngest of all of us. But we also had my uncle, Mike, who lived with us. And he was my dad's oldest brother. And he was an amazing person. Um, he was always there for us. He was like our rock, you know, our safety uh, net. He was our security, everything. So if he hadn't been in the household at this time, things would have been really, really horrific for us. Um, but he was there. So he provided some normalcy. And at the age of, you know, 10, 11, 12, I saw my mother overdose for the first time. I saw my dad drunk and the cops started being called and all of a sudden our life was just being turned upside down. And suddenly it went from, I had a picture perfect life to, Oh my gosh, this is the life that has been, you know, this is the life that I've been living that I wasn't even aware of. And so everything completely changed one night when my dad was arrested in front of us out in the street in a really dramatic fashion. And my whole world was just turned upside down and I was 14. So it was my first week or first month of, freshman year in high school. And I was already being, you know, at that age, self-conscious and kind of wondering what this new stage of my life is going to be like, trying to figure out my own path in life. And then that just devastated me. So um, that's when things really started to change for me. 
And after that, my mom, she just really lost it and her addiction got the best of her. So within a four to five month period, I lost my father and my mother and they were both just gone. My dad in prison, my mom out doing her stuff. And uh, I was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know how to cope with that. There was so much emotion and so much pain that I had never experienced before. And it just devastated me, man. It completely devastated me. Imagine. Are you, are you comfortable talking about uh, the day your, your father got in trouble with the police? Is that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You want. So, um, so, yeah. so that day, um, I don't know. I was out in the neighborhood hanging out with friends and um, I had just, you know, started high school and I was still very young though and immature. I was still naive. Like in, internally, I felt like I was still probably 12 and 13. I was just a kid at heart. Um, I was 14 and he was drunk. He was really drunk. And, you know, he, he was arguing with my uncle about something. And I went back in the room to talk to him in the back of the house and he had a gun and he told me to go get the clip from the garage. And I knew where he kept it. I'd seen him, you know, with it before. And I knew my dad wasn't going to hurt anybody, but he was so intoxicated that he had this look on his face. He wasn't even there. He wasn't coherent. His eyes were glassed over. Like he was not the same person. So I was scared and I pleaded with him and I didn't want to. And uh, for one reason or another, I relented and I went and got him the clip, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing, you know, really what I was doing. And he put the clip in the gun and I still remember the sound of that to this day. You know, it sent chills through me. And uh, man, I was just terrified. My uncle caught wind of what was going on. And uh, he grabbed my siblings and I put us in the car and drove off and he had called the cops. So th- we're leaving. We live in a cul-de-sac of a neighborhood and they're just a parade of sheriffs and police officers come and blockade the street. So we're stuck now, like three, four houses down right around the corner from our place um, in the car. They're saying, get down. You know, you can't move. You can't leave. Now we're in between our place and this barricade that the cops just set up. And um, suddenly I hear my dad's car start. He had a loud car, the engine roared, and I hear him come just blazing down the street, man. And I was so scared. I thought that the cops were just going to shoot him. You know, I thought that I was going to see my dad killed in front of us for sure. And um, we were just getting down the car. My brother and sister were clinging to me. You know, they were younger. They were kids and uh, pleading with me like, Sean, please, like, you know, it was horrible. It was a horrible thing to go through. And, you know, thankfully, miraculously, my dad just surrendered. He just got out of the car and let them cuff him up. And uh, he got arrested for brandishing a weapon. And he, they took him off to jail. That must have been traumatic. Um, you, you talked about having this this big family and this kind of close-knit, you know, big family. I mean, I, I come from a background of big family, so I didn't see too many dis- dissimilarities there. So arguably from the outside, it looks like you you fit in with the other kids. Would you say that an event like this where you lose a parent in that kind of scenario alienates you from the other children that you're growing up with or kind of makes you a bit of an outcast in your upbringing? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, my, my family members weren't very judgmental. It was just painful. I mean, my dad and his siblings, they came up um, with a rough background. You know, a lot of them overcame that and they're very successful now leading good lives, but some of them didn't, some of them didn't make it. So early on, there was always this, um, we were always aware of the struggle. We were always aware of the demons that my family had been fighting for, for centuries or for, um, you know, generations before us. So um, they probably expected something like that to happen, honestly. Um, But when it did, you know, it's still devastating, but we were never made 
to feel, you know, like ostracized or the black sheep of the family. If anything, we were taken care of, you know, even more so because my aunts and uncles, you know, felt for us and they wanted to make sure we were loved and taken care of. I can imagine. Do you see that as that event as the catalyst for sending you down the path that you ended up going down with no real direction? Yes, absolutely. Talk me through, so that you were 14, weren't you, when, when your father was arrested? Um, yeah, talk me through the your you know teenage years then the kind of path you were going down in your teenage years. Yeah, so after that, I mean, it appeared like I just I changed overnight. You know, once my mom left us, she abandoned us. Um, I was just heartbroken. I couldn't believe losing my father. I was still shell shocked by that, and then to lose her, I was just in disbelief. So I couldn't bear that pain, and immediately I started doing whatever I could to numb it. So. Um, overnight I changed. I started hanging out with completely different kids leading up to that. I was really, um, in love with sports and surfing. I used to surf every day. I wanted to be a professional surfer. I had a group of friends and we'd go to the beach. We'd leave school sometimes and go surf. And we were just good kids, man. We were having fun with life. I stopped hanging out with them. I started hanging out with a new group of kids that I could identify with more and who I just kind of looked up to. And I started doing drugs and drinking every chance I could. And I just started putting, all these foreign substances in my body. First, it was smoking weed, drinking and pills. And then I, I pretty much did anything I can get my hands on to try to just numb myself. So going through high school, very quickly, I stopped going. I, I didn't want to be there. I was just distraught, man. Every day I would wake up and I was just miserable. I was just miserable. I didn't want to go to school and be around people that knew me from childhood because they would say, you know, what is going on in your life, Sean? Or they might try to talk to me and relate to me, but I couldn't even connect with them, you know? And so uh, teachers, friends, family members, everybody was trying to, to reach out to me, but I was just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to like face the reality of my situation. So I tried my best to block myself off from the world. And that meant not going to school, hanging out with these new friends where no one knew I was never going home. When I was 15, I never went home. Maybe like here and there, I would sleep there, but I was estranged from my uncle Mike and my siblings. And um, I was just numb and high on drugs all the time. So you know, I, I stopped going to school and they were going to kick me out and they let me go to a continuation school, which just kept me going to the campus. You know, it kept me going there, even though the classroom was uh, on the outskirts and there wasn't really any like mandatory curriculum. It was more just to keep me off the streets at that point. Mm -hmm. And I had some good teachers there, man, and they cared about me. And so I was able to get enough credits over the next two years to go back to to regular high school the last semester and actually go through my ceremony and graduate. So I got a diploma. I did everything. I didn't earn it, but I, I received it. And uh, yeah, that whole span from 15 to 18 was just like, it was chaos, man. Is there a point, obviously in your, it, you've got your life completely together now, but in hindsight, looking back, was there, is there a certain event that you kind of go, that was probably the lowest point for me? The lowest point in my life. Mm -hmm. In that, are they, or would you class that as in the early years, or would you class that maybe a bit? I'm later? sorry, say that again. So, in terms of the the low point between 14 to 15 and 18, it, would you class there as a point in there that is the lowest point that you've been in your life? Yeah, probably. You know, shortly after my mom left us, I remember one night I was just I couldn't sleep. You know, I was tossing and turning, trying to make sense of what was happening to, to us. 
you know, it was just so painful. And I could not believe that 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 was my life. Like in the blink of an eye, it changed and I just couldn't accept it. So I remember one night I couldn't sleep and I just, I felt so alone, you know, and I went to the bathroom, just stared at myself in the mirror and I just started crying, man. And uh, I was just a broken kid, you know, I was a broken kid and I felt hopeless at that point. And that was the lowest that I had been in that time. I can imagine. Um, going on then from, you know, after 18, because uh, it all culminates, this whole bad period in your life kind of culminates at a party at the age of 23, was it? Yeah. Uh, did you feel your life was essentially escalating and getting cataclysmic and out of control leading up to that point? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. You know, actually, after high school, I started working. So I started working for a different uncle, one of my dad's brothers, his tree service. He had a successful company in town. He was one of the, the individuals in my life who, who had made it. He overcame his demons and his tough upbringing and he was making something of himself. He was, you know, symbolic of like a man that I wanted to be. So I had a good role model in him and he put me to work right out of high school. And it was a great thing for me because I had nothing to look forward to after high school, nothing. And he knew that. So it taught me how to be disciplined. It taught me how to get up early and, you know, push myself to accomplish something that day. It was physical work. I was carrying brush and, and big logs and climbing trees so it required tremendous amounts of effort every day. And I took pride in that. I started seeing how my hard work could pay off. And for the first time in my life, I felt proud of what I was doing. And, and they're very successful now leading good lives, but some of them didn't. Some of them didn't make it. So early on, there was always this. Um, we were always aware of the struggle. We were always aware of the demons that my family had been fighting for, for centuries or for um, you know, generations before us. So um, they probably expected something like that to happen, honestly. Um, but when it did, you know, it's still devastating, but we were never made to feel, you know, like ostracized or the black sheep of the family. If anything, we were taken care of, you know, even more so because my aunts and uncles, you know, felt for us and they wanted to make sure we were loved and taken care of. I can imagine. Do you see that as that event as the catalyst for sending you down the path that you ended up going down with no real direction. Yes, absolutely. Talk me through. So that you were fourteen when you when when your father was arrested. Um, yeah. Was... Talk me through the your you know teenage years then the kind of path you were going down in your teenage years. Yeah. So after that, I mean, it appeared like I just I changed overnight. You know, once my mom left us, she abandoned us. Um, I was just heartbroken. I couldn't believe losing my father. I was still shell-shocked by that. And then to lose her, I was just in disbelief. So I couldn't bear that pain. And immediately I started doing whatever I could to numb it. So um, overnight I changed. I started hanging out with completely different kids. Leading up to that, I was really um, in love with sports and surfing. I used to surf every day. I wanted to be a professional surfer. I had a group of friends and we'd go to the beach. We'd leave school sometimes and go surf. And we were just good kids, man. We were having fun with life. I stopped hanging out with them. I started hanging out with a new group of kids that I could identify with more and who I just kind of looked up to. And I started doing drugs and drinking every chance I could. And I just started putting all these foreign substances in my body. First, it was smoking weed, drinking and pills. And then I, I pretty much did anything I can get my hands on to try to just numb myself. So going through high school, 
very quickly I stopped going. I, I didn't want to be there. I was just distraught, man. Every day I would wake up and I was just miserable. I was just miserable. I didn't want to go to school and be around people that knew me from childhood because they would say, you know, what is going on in your life, Sean? Or they might try to talk to me and relate to me, but I couldn't even connect with them, you know? And so uh, teachers, friends, family members, everybody was trying to, to reach out to me, but I was just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to like face the reality of my situation. So I tried my best to block myself off from the world. And that meant not going to school, hanging out with these new friends where no one knew I was, never going home. When I was 15, I never went home. Maybe like here and there, I would sleep there, but I was estranged from my uncle Mike and my siblings. And um, I was just numb and high on drugs all the time. So, you know, I, I stopped going to school and they were gonna kick me out and they let me go to a continuation school, which just kept me going to the campus. You know, it kept me going there even though the classroom was uh, on the outskirts and there wasn't really any like mandatory curriculum. It was more just to keep me off the streets at that point. Mm -hmm. And I had some good teachers there, man, and they cared about me. And so I was able to get enough credits over the next two years to go back to, to regular high school the last semester and actually go through my ceremony and graduate. So I got a diploma. I did everything. I didn't earn it, but I, I received it. And, uh, yeah, that whole span from 15 to 18 was just like, it was chaos, man. Is there a point, obviously, in your, it, you've got your life completely together now. But in hindsight, looking back, was there, is there a certain event that you kind of go, that was probably the lowest point for me? The lowest point in my life? Mm -hmm. In that, are they, or would you class that as in the early years or would you class that maybe a bit I'm later? sorry, say that again? So, in terms of the the low point between 14 to 15 and 18 it would you class there as a point in there that is the lowest point that you've been in your life yeah probably you know shortly after my mom left us i remember one night i was just i couldn't sleep you know i was tossing and turning trying to make sense of what was happening to to us you know it was just so painful and I could not believe that 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 was my life. Like in the blink of an eye, it changed and I just couldn't accept it. So I remember one night I couldn't sleep and I just, I felt so alone, you know, and I went to the bathroom, just stared at myself in the mirror and I just started crying, man. And uh, I was just a broken kid, you know, I was a broken kid and I felt hopeless at that point. And that was the lowest that I had been in that time. I can imagine. Um, going on then from, you know, after 18, because uh, it all culminates, this whole bad period in your life kind of culminates at a party at the age of 23, was it? Yeah. Uh, did you feel your life was essentially escalating and getting cataclysmic and out of control leading up to that point? Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. You know, actually, after high school, I started working. So I started working for a different uncle, one of my dad's brothers, his tree service. He had a successful company in town. He was one of the, the individuals in my life who, who had made it. He overcame his demons and his tough upbringing and he was making something of himself. He was, you know, symbolic of like a man that I wanted to be. So I had a good role model in him and he put me to work right out of high school. And it was a great thing for me because I had nothing to look forward to after high school, nothing. And he knew that. So it taught me how to be disciplined. It taught me how to get up early and, you know, push myself to accomplish something that day. It was physical work. I was carrying brush and, and big logs and climbing trees. 
So it required tremendous amounts of effort every day. And I took pride in that. I started seeing how my hard work could pay off. And for the first time in my life, I felt proud of what I was doing. And, you know, at that time, my uncle Mike, who had been raising us, was older and he was out of work. He couldn't work. He had gotten injured. So I was helping to financially Hello. It was, um, you know, a really important experience for me to go through because I, I learned what it meant to really like have responsibility and what it meant to get up every day and apply myself. And I started seeing the benefits of that. Uh, I was getting stronger physically, mentally. Uh, I was having confidence in who I was and what I was doing for the first time in my life because I was able to provide financially for my family. Um, I was working side by side with my dad and my uncles or one of my uncles. So I took pride in what I was doing and I had to give my all every day because here I'm in front of my dad and my uncle and they're working hard, man. And it's my uncle's company. So I was just giving my all every day to, to learning the trade. And um, that was a really pivotal time in my life as far as my confidence and my self-image. Because before that, uh, I was really self-conscious. You know, going through high school with everything going on in my personal life and with my parents, I became very self-conscious. I was closed off and introverted. So here I was feeling good about what I was doing in my life. Um, and I was getting to develop a relationship with my dad working side by side with him and spending all hours of the day together that I had really wanted for my entire life. So that was a good time from, you know, early on, early on um, after high school, about 18. But the thing is, I still had my demons. I was still heavily addicted to drugs and alcohol and I started abusing them even more because I had the excuse, oh, I'm working hard, I earned this, or, oh, I'm tired, it was a long day, my back hurts, let me take some more pain pills, let me drink some more. So you know, on one end, I was developing confidence in who I was and I was growing into this, this more mature version of myself. But on the other hand, my demons were just getting stronger and stronger every day. So um, there was good and bad, you know, but everything was escalating at home. My dad's addiction was really bad and it caused a lot of chaos at home. Um, my behavior was not right. You know, I was not acting the way I needed to be for my family. So it was a constant struggle from 18 to 21 until we finally left my, my family home, the one I grew up in, and we, we went our separate ways. We couldn't keep it anymore from a financial standpoint. It wasn't realistic. So I ended up moving out of Santa Barbara to a different uncle's property in a county south of us an hour away to try to get out of my environment, away from my old friends, um, and I just tried to get a fresh start. So I moved out there with a girlfriend at the time. We had our own little cottage, and Actually, at that time, from 22 till right around 23, um, was, was a peaceful time for me in my life. I had a little bit of sobriety. I was trying to change. Um, I was trying to just move past like the, the codependent relationships and the damage that had been done in my youth. And so there was a brief little window where things actually looked hopeful, like maybe I could have a decent life at that point. So, I mean, you're getting your life back on track at that point after a, a period of, you know, misbehavior and kind of dark periods. Um, 
but then all of that kind of gets taken away from you at the age of 23 when you go to a party. Bit by bit, are you able to explain the party for me? So so why were you there in the first place? What was the party for? Yeah, so let me backtrack real quick. Right about six months before that, my girlfriend and I split up. Uh, it just wasn't working out. We weren't happy and she left. And, you know, it was hard on me. That was my first time going through that. And it hit me hard. And so I used that as, that as an excuse to start drinking again. I had been sober for 10 months, right? That seemed like an eternity for me. Yeah. But I, I hadn't dealt with all the, the pain and all the, you know, stuff that I was numbing out from my childhood. So those feelings, those suppressed feelings had, had not been dealt with. So immediately now I have a breakup. My heart's broken again. And I'm going to drink and take pills to numb it out. And I started going back into my old ways, heavier than ever before, just putting so much you know, abuse to my body with drugs and pills and any substance I can get my hands on. So naturally I started coming back to Santa Barbara, hanging out with old friends, partying, um, just doing that whole thing all over again. And so this night, um, my friend and I had heard about a party in a, a nice place in Santa Barbara called the Mesa. It's an area right on the coastline and there's nice, there's nice homes and I've been there before. So we decided to go check it out. And we got there and I didn't know anybody at the party. I was meeting one girl that I knew and she showed up with some friends. And so the friends she showed up with were, I think two or three guys. And I had seen them in the past. We knew each other through mutual acquaintances, but we weren't friends. We didn't hang out. We never really talked ever. So that night though, I didn't know anyone else at the party and I'm kind of talking with random people, but mainly with this group, right? This girl, the friend I came to the party with and her group of friends, because we all somewhat know each other. So. Uh, at some point, the guys she came with and another group of guys start getting into it. They start a verbal altercation in the kitchen, and it looks like they're going to start fighting. For some reason, they didn't. It died down. I don't really remember why. Um, I was kind of just, but we knew that there was something going on at the party. We knew that there was like a beef or tension between these two groups of people. And um, so later that night, you know, I'm leaving. I'm leaving to go downtown Santa Barbara to go out to a couple bars with the friend I showed up with at the party, we're gonna go hang out with some other people we had plans to meet with. And we're leaving at, at the same time as the girl that I was hanging out with and her friends are leaving. We're all leaving together. They're going one direction, we're going the other. But we get to the front of the house and that, that old group of guys that they had been fighting with or arguing with followed us out. And so now we're face to face with this group of guys um, in front of the house. And I'm, I'm standing with you know, that girl's friends. I, I like I'm right there kind of like backing them up, seeing what's going on. And this is the mentality, man, from my youth that came back. Right. It's like always looking for that altercation, always being ready for a fight. When I grew up as a, um, you know, an adolescent, we would go out every weekend and there was always always be fights. My friends would get in a fight. I would get in a fight. We would be drinking. Another guy would say something. And this was very common for us. And I'm talking about fights with your hands, fist fights. And then everyone's you know, a little bruised up after, but you go your separate ways and, and that's that. So I had seen this happen so many times that I was, I was right there and I was ready because here's this group of guys and they're looking at us. They're going to come and try to attack us. So a fight breaks out, somebody hits somebody. And I, I backed up a little bit and kind of observed the situation. And there's a guy right across from me and he and I lock eyes and he comes at me and I come at him before we get, you know, to actually start fighting or throwing punches or whatever was going to happen. I don't even know what I was doing at that point, right? Um, I get blindsided by a group of people, I guess. 
slam into a car. So I'm holding on to whoever's like, I think tackling me um, to try to just, I don't know, hold on to them and do something. And we hit the car and then we go to the ground. And when we went to the ground, my only thought was that I'm about to start getting kicked in the head. Like those guys, for some reason, zeroed in on me and I'm about to get jumped or someone's jumping me. This guy's friends are going to start hitting me. And um, so I'm holding on to him. I'm bear hugging him. I'm on my back. He's laying on top of me and I'm trying to flip over. I'm trying to get out from underneath him, but I couldn't. And I kept trying back and forth. And then finally I flipped him over. And as soon as I did, I, I punched him twice in the side of the head because I thought I was you know, going to start getting jumped or I thought he was going to get up and start swinging on me. So my punches just grazed his head though. They just grazed his head. I didn't hit him like really hard. And when I stood up, he didn't get up after me. And I thought that was strange, but this is happening like split second, man. So immediately I hear, Sean, let's go, let's go. And I turn to the street and the friend that I went to the party with, he's calling me over, let's go. And there's, it's chaos, man. People are fighting all over the place. People are like yelling. It was a dramatic scene. So I started walking to the street and I'm limping because my back is just shot. I got slammed into that car and something's pinched in my low back. I was limping like I could barely walk. So it took me what felt like forever to get to the street. And I get to my friend and we're underneath a, a, a lamp, you know, a street light. And suddenly he looks at me, he's like, Sean, what the hell, man? You're covered in blood. And all over my whole body, my face, my shirt, everything, my, I'm just dripping with blood, just covered. And I was just shocked. It was something like out of a movie. And so he just yells at me, let's go, man. Let's get out of here. And I start limping up the street after him. He takes off. So I'm just limping. I'm just limping so slow. You hear sirens and and stuff like that and cops are coming we get up around the corner like 100 yards from the the scene of the party in front of the house and there's a laundromat and he calls me in there right when i walk in right off the street three cops just race by with the lights on and uh so we go in there and i'm so intoxicated and so like i'm just so out of it man i had been putting so much substance in my body so much alcohol that i was just almost incoherent right but we get to the laundromat and he helps me take off that shirt because it's covered in blood. And he like opens up the dryer and finds some old shirt in this apartment complex laundromat. And I put it on. It's almost like a long sleeve like this. And then he had called a cab. So there's a cab up the street and he's like, let's go. I called the cab. Let's go. And I limped with him. We got in the cab and we left and it happened so quick. You know, it happened so fast. And then later that night we get home and it was really late and my body was just all beat up. I was sore and trying to make sense of what's going on. And we didn't really talk about it, you know, at that night. Um, I assumed because he was right there and he was my friend from childhood. We knew each other for 20 years, that he knew that I didn't stab anybody. Like he saw that I got dropped to the ground and I was wrestling with people and I punched this guy on the way up as a defense mechanism. Cause you know, that's what we're doing, we're fighting. But I never thought in a million years that maybe he thought I had a knife or that he, he would question that. And he knew I didn't, he was right there. Um, so we didn't talk about it. I assumed that he knew what was up and we were just, you know, kind of shell shocked by what happened. So the next day I wake up and like, oh man, this is real. Like this wasn't just a nightmare. This is actually happening, you know? And I knew that there was going to be repercussions. I knew that the cops were going to question us. And so I Googled it and realized that there was two guys stabbed that night. The guy that had fallen on me, I'm trying to make sense of all this because I didn't see like the actions clearly. So the guy who had fallen on me, he was already stabbed or he was being stabbed when he crashed into me and he almost died. Um, they said that, you know, he actually, his heart stopped beating two or three times on the way to the hospital and they had to use the defibrillators on him. Um, I don't know if that was a rumor or true, 
but he came as close to dying as possible without dying. Like it's a miracle that he survived. So I see that and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really serious, you know? And um, I assume the cops were gonna come and question me and maybe detain me, but I had no idea that they were gonna charge me with attempted murder and try to say that I was the one that did it. And that's the next thing, you know, I'm hungover, I'm sick, I'm, I'm coming off all the drugs and alcohol. And uh, my friend had left. I woke up and he was gone and we're at his place. And, you know, he, he had left and he was, you know, scared. He wanted to try to get himself out of what was going on. So he had tried to talk himself out of the situation. And by doing so, the cops had already detained him. And then they were on their way to come get me. So as I was leaving his place in another vehicle, uh, a team of SWAT officers and police cars, like 15 or 20 cars, all came down the street with the dogs, AR-15s the forensic unit, like it was something out of a movie, you know? And uh, they pulled the rifles on me and got me out of the car and arrested me. What was going through your head at that time then? It was surreal, man. You know, I had expected it, but not in that fashion. Um, it was just surreal. And to be honest with you, I was so numb. You know, I was scared, but I was really numb. Um, I was taking so much pills and drinking so much at that point that I just couldn't even really connect to the moment. Like it just was su too surreal for me to even grasp what was going on. Did you, I'm not massively familiar with the, the kind of judicial system in, in the US. So did you get detained in a county jail kind of waiting for, for anything or, or did you get taken to the, the police station or what was the kind of series of events? Yeah, they took me to the police station that night um, and you know, they just left me in a room for a while. And I thought that they were going to come in and question me and maybe try to get me to like give them information or something. I had no idea that they were going to charge me with attempted murder and that I was the number one suspect. So once I found out that was going on, I was, I was in disbelief. When the officer told me, I could not believe it. You know, I thought they were just trying to pressure me or something to try to try to give them any information that I could about that night. But no, I was their number one suspect. So they gave me a white jumpsuit. They threw me in this room. They told me, put it on. They left me in there forever. And then uh, they drove me to the county jail and they booked me into the county jail and charged me with attempted murder. Um, and and that, you took a plea deal, didn't you? Cause, because even your lawyers didn't believe your side of the story whatsoever. Yeah, so the first day when I went to court, um, the first thing my lawyer, my public defender came up and said to me is, hey, they're probably gonna amend your charges to homicide. The victim is brain dead. That was the first thing that she said to me and I couldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't even connect to what she was saying. I couldn't, I couldn't understand, you know? And meanwhile, in the background, photographer, photographers from the news press are there trying to get my shot to put on the front page of the paper. Uh, you know, it was a, like a circus, man. And so I couldn't believe that. Here I am at 23 about to, be sent to prison for the rest of my life for something I didn't do. I just couldn't even, I couldn't even entertain that as being a possibility, you know, as, as bad as it looked at that moment, I wouldn't accept it. So um, the next time I came back to court, they stopped talking about the homicide. The victim had survived. He had made a, a full recovery, full recovery. So going from him being brain dead in a coma, right on death's door to recovering, it was a miracle, man. Mm -hmm. But they were still charging me with attempted murder. And all the people at the party who had made statements, 
told the cops they saw me on top of the victim striking down at him. So the cops wrote up the report to make it look like I attacked the guy and people came out after the initial attack and commotion. So they didn't see the fight start. You know, when a fight starts, there's stuff happening for five, 10 seconds before people start paying attention. So everyone who did give a, um, a statement to the cops, they all said, yeah, we saw Sean on top of him striking him. And so he was already assaulted at that time. But know that all I knew was I was being attacked and wrestled to the ground by these guys. And I was trying to survive, man. So um, the police report was horrible. My lawyers didn't think I was innocent. They thought I did it for sure. And the way the police report was written up, it looked horrible. Anybody that would read it would automatically say, oh yeah, absolutely, Sean did it. I mean, when I explained to you that chain of events, imagine being an onlooker and you see these guys wrestling around and then you see me on top of this guy strike, it's horrible and I'm cut. And then I flee the scene, it looked horrible. I knew how it looked. And there was nothing I could do about that. There was nothing. So I went to court back and forth for about eight months, all the while I'm just in a cell you know, reflecting on my life, thinking about what I'd done to get to this point in my life or what I had neglected, right? And lived carelessly and just allowed those precious moments to pass me by. So I was in the midst of this transformation already. And really early on, the proceedings in the courtroom stopped even getting my attention. I just started putting faith in, in God and in some type of fate or destiny that this was the path that I was supposed to be on. And not to say I wasn't scared and not to say it wasn't hard, but I started finding something within me that I had lacked my whole life. And that's where my attention started to go. So I was in the midst of this transformation, searching within myself more so than ever before, because I'm in a jail cell with nothing, no TV, no phone, no external distractions. It's just me and my thoughts and my memories and the truth, man. And that truth hit me hard, right? That I just wasted 23 years of my life, right? I was in pain. I failed to face my demons and I neglected my life and didn't do what I wanted. And I didn't follow my heart and be the person that I knew I could be. And that's where the beginning of my transformation started. So when I went to court one day, they said, Hey, you know, the DA is willing to give you a plea deal for assault with a deadly weapon. The maximum term for that is seven years. If you don't take that and you go to trial, Sean, you're probably going to lose and you're going to do 10, 20, 30 years in prison. They said, you got to take this deal. Nobody wins in trial in California. Your case is really bad. You have nothing to really grasp to that's going to give you hope. And the conviction rate for the district attorney who was um, prosecuting me was 99%. Mm-hmm. So you take it to trial would have just been, you know, a death wish, a, a death yeah. sentence, a life sentence possibly. So I took the deal. I took the deal for seven years. I would do 85% of that time, which is you know, about six years I was set to do. And I had done eight months in the county jail. So I said, okay, I got five years in prison. Um, and that's what I did. Obviously, you talk about this this magical kind of transformation that starts to happen. That faith that you build by going in, does, is, does that outweigh the kind of innate bitterness that anyone would have by serving the time that someone else should be serving? Yeah, I was never mad that I was being prosecuted. I was never resentful. I felt in my heart that I deserved to be incarcerated. That's how I took it for, for living my life so carelessly and for not pursuing what I felt in my heart and just like wasting 23 years of life, right? So I had a tremendous amount of guilt for that. I had a tremendous amount of guilt for, for damaging my body and my mind with drugs and alcohol and not being the person my family needed, 
And, you know, I didn't blame myself because I knew I was in pain and I knew I didn't know how to cope with that. But I refused to just be a victim any longer, man. Mm-hmm. And to sit there and blame the, um, the system, to sit there and blame the DA or the witnesses in the case, that was a victim mentality. That wouldn't serve me moving forward in my life. So I owned up to my part in it. I shouldn't have been at that party. I shouldn't have been in that altercation. Um, I shouldn't have been doing a lot of things. And so I just had to look at my part. I had to look at the reality of my predicament. And that was my choices leading up to those moments, right? And so I started doing that early on. And I started reflecting on all the pain and all the, you know, the harm that had been caused me early on that I wasn't letting go of. And through that process, I started to come to peace with it. You know, I started to, to heal and come to peace with my parents' wrongdoings and all the things that I couldn't let go of and that I was hung up on, all the things that I wanted to numb out and hide from, right? Because that's why I used drugs and alcohol. I didn't want to face the reality of my life and what it was. I was ashamed of myself and who I was. I was ashamed of my life. So sitting in that cell and reflecting on that, I realized those events happen, but they don't define who I am. You know, in my heart, I know who I really am. I'm not saying kid that loves sports. I'm that same kid that would be out surfing all day long with his friends. And that was just so, so full of life. So I started connecting with that person again. You know, I started connecting with that person. Here I am sober now. I have sobriety in the county jail. I'm not using drugs and alcohol anymore. And my mind started coming alive, man. And I started feeling these emotions within and this like desire to live life, this love for life, this longing for everything that I had neglected and overlooked. And so from there, the spark that was just ignited inside of me. Um, it was miraculous. You know, it, it took so much of my attention and, and that's what away from what was going on to the point where I'd be cuffed up like this man on the bus or in court and I'd be lost in thought daydreaming or visualizing about the future. Just, you know, I was so, so um, immersed in this transformation that I was going through that it really alleviated the external circumstances. So really early on, I tapped into some internal peace that I had been longing my whole life. And that was the void that I was trying to fill with drugs and alcohol. That was the void that so many people out here try to fill, right? With their their negative ways of coping. And suddenly I'm in a jail cell, feeling peace, feeling love, feeling gratitude for just life, right? And um, that's when everything started to change for me. So I wasn't fixated on the negative circumstances. I was just immersed in the positive changes that were taking place. Was this the first time since being you know, a, a young lad in, in California wanting to be a surfer when you grow up? Is this the first time since then that you had goals to aspire to? Hello. Absolutely. Uh, it's the first time I thought about living my future differently or believe that it could be possible. Mm-hmm. What was that? Oh, no, sorry, that you froze up then. Uh, I think it's... Oh, yeah. It's on my part. Uh, it's okay. we, so... You're, you're in prison and you start to better yourself in, in numerous ways. Are you able to talk about those ways that you did, you bettered yourself, you improved on, on yourself? Yeah, so it started in the county jail. First of all, being sober. Uh, that had to be that had to be a constant in my life if I was going to be able to pull myself out of that dark place. So one day in the county jail, I'm sitting there in the holding tank waiting to see the judge. And I'm there all day from like 7 a.m. till 4 p.m. Just sitting in a holding cell cuffed up like this, mm-hmm. shackled around my ankles and my wrists by myself or guys would come and go and go into court. Um, and I just had this epiphany that, wow, I can never use drugs and alcohol ever again. 
Like, I, not only does that have to be a, you know, a 100% like commitment on my part, but it's possible. Before that, life, we like all the part of remember making it's like, how do people have fun? What do they do? I just identified with it so much because it had been such a crutch for me. So that was a huge epiphany. I can live my life sober for the rest of my life. And then I made the internal commitment that 100%, as much as I want to breathe air and live and get out of prison, I'm going to give that much effort to sobriety. And so I did. And that was nine years ago. I've been sober ever since. Um, and, you know, I had these profound moments where I was just reflecting on my life and feeling the effects of the regret and the remorse for living so carelessly, for just not giving anything to life and just having like this mediocre like horrible life in existence. That's what I felt the 23 years were. They were just, you know, inferior lifestyle. And um, so I was sitting there and I just made a, uh, another deep commitment, a different day, a different moment in the county jail that from that moment forward, no matter where I was or what I was doing, I would number one, always be my true and authentic self. No matter what, I would never change for anyone or anything. I would be true to who I was. Number two is I was gonna give my all, everything that I had, to every moment of my life, no matter what I was doing. So this started by me cleaning my floor in my cell with a towel to the best of my ability, till that floor was spotless. To every letter I wrote, you know, precise, perfect penmanship, perfect grammar. Now this didn't happen overnight, right? I'll get to that in a moment. Um, all my workouts to the best of my ability, every push up, everything that I did, I was just giving so much energy and effort to. So I started, taking pride in who I was and what I was doing, just like I described early on when I was working. So it was that same intent and that same awareness as to what I was doing in, in that moment. It didn't matter that I was cleaning the floor or a jail cell that wasn't mine. It was just in the moment, that's who I was and I was gonna do it to the best of my ability. So another thing that started to happen was my weaknesses started to become very apparent. And early on in life, if something you know scared me or I wasn't good at it or it was challenging, I would, um, find an excuse or reason not to work on it, right? I would find a reason why it didn't matter. And I would justify that. So when I started writing letters, I realized how bad my spelling was, how bad my writing was. And I would get letters back from people and they'd be correcting me on my spelling. Um, and I didn't like that, man. I didn't like that at all. And then one day, my celly, who I'd been asking like, hey, how do you spell this word? Or hey, is this correct? He threw a little pocket dictionary over his shoulder from where he was sitting to where I was writing. And it hit me in the shoulder. And he goes, look it up. And I didn't, I didn't like that. My initial thought was like to say something to him. And then I thought, okay, okay, I'm going to look these words up. And so I just started looking up words in the dictionary, man. And I started uh, improving my penmanship. And I started taking so much pride in every letter that I wrote. Like every letter had to be as good as a college paper, right? And so I started improving my writing. And I'm reading books. You can get books in jail. And I noticed my mind started coming alive. And before this, I had a limiting belief, like I'm not smart, I'm not intelligent, I'm street smart, but I don't have that book smarts like some of my other family members do. Um, but I started to change that. And I started to see that I could change with effort. That like my mind could expand, I, I could evolve literally. So um, I heard about college courses in prison, that some prisons offer a correspondence program with a college out here in California, and you can get associate's degrees. So I had my mindset on that. Now, previously, I would have found a reason why I didn't need that. I would have listened to the fear and doubt in the back of my head, and I wouldn't have pursued it. But once I got to prison, I had been 
conducting myself in this manner that I'm describing with pride, with ownership of all my little responsibilities and tasks every day. So by this time, I have discipline. Um, I have a routine. Uh, I'm working out, except be hardwired and, and hardened because of that. So I enrolled in college courses in prison. And that was one of the major accomplishments I was able to, uh, to have is getting college degrees. I ended up getting four college degrees. A lot of the information I'll never use. A lot of those degrees will be irrelevant. But what they did for me on an intrinsic level, internal, is beyond what I can describe to you with words. It gave me a whole new sense of who I was and what I could do with my life and my effort if I put forth effort every day. And um, it was just symbolic, man, of the changes I was going through. So that was a major accomplishment. Um, my physical health and the way I, I established routines for myself that kept me focused and, and like at peace, right? Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and then physically just in the best shape of my life. That was something that I carry with me to this day that has helped me have success here, out, out here in this world. So um, those things, and then right at the end of my sentence, the last two years, I had been getting enrolled in alcohol and drug programs. And I had already been clean and sober. I made the commitment that I was going to be for the rest of my life. But a lot of these guys weren't. And so I would go in there and I just, I started sharing my story, man. I started talking about the things that I went through. And I started openly describing, you know, my struggles in life and how I overcame them and how I want to live a better life. And some of the guys gravitated towards me because of that. And after I graduated the program, I was able to stay on as a counselor, inmate, mentor, and start to speak openly in the group meetings every day. I started to actually work side by side with the counselors and facilitate lessons. And then I would go back to the housing unit or the building with these guys, and they would kind of come up to me and ask me questions or they'd want to work out. And so the last two years of my time in prison, I started mentoring other guys and mm -hmm. I was helping them to get in shape a lot physically at first and then challenging them with education, um, challenging them to think about a future that is better than the one they left behind, you know, start to envision what they could do if they put forth effort and strive to change rather than going back to the same old way. And so uh, that was a really awesome experience for me. That's when I realized that I could impact other people. And I realized that what I had found within myself in prison and the way I was living my life could help people out here have massive success. And not just success in business or finance or things like that, but I'm talking about on a spiritual level, like internally. A lot of people are walking around feeling that void that I described and they're not living the lives that they want and they don't know how to break free from that rut, right? They feel imprisoned within their own mind. And so I knew that what I had found within myself was invaluable. And no matter where you're at or what you're doing, that inner peace, that gratitude, that self-love can massively impact your life in the most positive way you could ever imagine. So that's when I uncovered my purpose. My purpose was to help others and to serve them and to bring this experience of being incarcerated home and share it with other people so that they can find hope within themselves to live the life that they truly want. Even though you're, I mean, firstly, I just want to say as well, congratulations for being sober for as long as you are nine years is spectacular and also um the fact that you've gone on to in prison to mentor these other people did you ever see even though these people that you were mentoring were in prison for be it for criminal activity they were actual criminals compared to your story uh where you're incarcerated for something that you didn't do 
did you still see a part of yourself, maybe or part of your story in these people that you're mentoring in prison? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had a lot in common growing up with parents who were addicted to drugs and alcohol, uh, the pain within, um, that internal conflict, that's where we could really relate because it didn't matter if they were a different race or from a different um, city, right? Or they were covered in tattoos and they were career criminals. Like we could all identify with that internal pain that we were trying to numb out. So uh, I think that they saw me overcoming my struggles and they saw how I was living and conducting myself every day. And I think that, you know, they could identify with what I had been through, but also wanting what I was doing in my life. And that was change. Mm -hmm. Did talk me through so this was in the last you know couple of years you were uh you were mentoring people and you were, had essentially found out who you wanted to be now prison had been this massively positive experience for you talk me through the day that you actually left prison what was your feelings was it mixed emotions when you left the, the jail yeah i mean the anticipation for that day is just indescribable like wow i'm actually going to get out of this place right it's amazing so that morning, um, I'm waiting to be called, right? The officers at the front of the building usually call you out and escort you really early before the sun's up. And they didn't call me. And I'm like, okay, they're gonna call me. Don't get all worried and concerned. But they still didn't call me. And I had to go up and ask them, hey, what's going on? I'm paroling today. And um, they're like, Crane, yeah, I don't know. You're not on the list, right? Well, they eventually called me, but it was hours late. So it's building the anticipation. And this happened perfectly. Because now I'm at the front, one of the gates to go up to the front of the prison. You're inside a big like yard and there's buildings. And so they get released out to go to breakfast and you walk around the track. And I'm over here at the gate waiting to be let go. So I hear them start announcing for chow. And I'm like, great, I'm going to be here another two hours because nobody can move in and out of that gate while people are being released. Mm -hmm. So I was a little upset at first. I'm like, man, I want to get out of this place. Let's go. I'm ready. Um, but it turned out to be such a blessing in disguise. I'm over at this gate with my bag of possessions. I'm still on my prison blues, mm -hmm. but these guys are being released and they're going to see me as they're walking to the chow hall. I didn't want to see them because people, and when you get out in prison, people might wish you well, but they're also going to be a little resentful because everyone wants to get out. Mm -hmm. So some people will wish you well and show respect. Others just kind of won't acknowledge it because they're doing 20 or 30 more years or five more years or whatever it is. So um, it's, right? It's like a teaser for them. Yeah. So these buildings start walking around the track, these guys, and um, I'm just not really going to look at them or, or like draw attention to me. I want to, I don't want to make them feel bad. Like I'm leaving and they're going to eat some breakfast in prison. Like you can imagine what they're about to go eat. But what happened is a couple of guys that I knew started seeing me and people started yelling over to me, wishing me well. Uh, and then more guys were yelling to me, I was a counselor in the drug program. So I knew guys from every building, not just my building, right? And they used to call me Captain America because I'm, I'm a white guy, had blonde hair. Um, and that was just the little nickname they gave me. So suddenly I started hearing all these guys yell, hey, Captain America, man, get out there and do good. Or Captain America, like all these things. And man, so many guys yelled over to me. All three buildings were released and each building, I don't know how many guys were in there, 500 maybe. And so um, it was one of the most humbling things in my life. Because in prison, not a lot of people are going to say positive things towards you. Maybe the, the guys you talk to daily, but guys that I had never even talked to yelled over to me. And that just taught me something really important that people are always watching. 
And even if they're not going to come and tell you, hey, we like what you're doing or, hey, that was, you know, really inspiring. When you are a leader and you lead by example through your actions every day, you're going to help a lot more people than you realize. So I took that with me. I took that with me. And that was a really important learning lesson because coming home, I had to prove myself all over again. And people weren't just going to give me the benefit of the doubt. You know, they didn't know what I've been doing for five years. They didn't know who I truly was. They just knew the old version of me that I'd shown the world. So that gave me a lot of confidence that I knew who I was. I knew I could help people and impact the world. And if I could get inmates in prison who don't tell anybody anything positive to yell over to me on the day I'm leaving, like wish me well, then I could come home and do something really good with my life. So that was an awesome awesome way to leave man it was really amazing how that took place it's almost poetic to kind of end such a a positive experience in a place where you would never expect to have a positive experience with a positive reaction from a group of people that you'd never expect to you know have that reaction from um in quite a a a finite question not as in the final question but as in like a what i want to ask is would you say that going to prison for you know, six to seven years for something that you didn't do is the best thing that has ever happened to you in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a blessing. There will be a lot of people that would, that listen to that sentence and are baffled by that. But I mean, your story kind of shows that, that people do completely transform their lives in places that stereotypically get portrayed as these, hell holes you know it, it's a lot of it's a lot of would you rather questions you know how would you cope in prison kind of thing and people go no i'd never be able to do it um but you, you show that that people come out of prison and completely reform um in spite of that in spite of the fact that people reform so massively in prison people are still kind of weighed down and hindered by you know a criminal record that looms over them or this kind of stigma that goes around with them when they go to different workplaces or in their life outside of prison. What do you think needs to be done to kind of fix that problem? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. And I thought about that myself, like, okay, I'm a felon. My picture was on the front page of the newspaper in my hometown. How am I gonna go back there and and train people in the gym or coach people, right? That's a massive challenge. But that never, that thought never like entertain much of my attention. I couldn't believe in that. I couldn't give any credence or energy or belief into that thought because that would change my actions and my behavior coming home. I had this vision, this compelling vision that I was working toward relentlessly for five years in prison. And to think that I was gonna come home and just stop out of fear, I, I couldn't do that to myself. So a lot of people say, oh, would you rather go to prison or would you rather do this, right? Like prison is one of the worst things that anyone could think of having to endure. Mm-hmm. But when you when you go through a situation like what I went through and you say, oh, I wouldn't be strong enough to make it. Like I've heard that a lot. People say, I don't know how you did that. I wouldn't make it. Yes, you would. You have to make it. You have no choice in the matter. You have to make it. And when you're put in a situation when your back's against the wall like that and you have no option but to survive and to overcome, you tap into a part of yourself, an internal source of strength that you never even knew existed that is so empowering that it'll transform the way you live your life forever. Because we're all holding back. We have no clue as to what we are truly capable or how much potential we really possess until we're forced to tap into it and utilize it, right? So we're in this comfort zone out here. We're living our lives aimlessly with never being challenged, right? 
people are facing this adversity with COVID and they're just falling off and they're acting like it's the worst thing ever. And to be honest with you, COVID is nothing. If you, if you embrace these experiences and you allow them to teach you and you strengthen yourself to overcome them rather than a victim of circumstance, you will adapt and you will grow so much through that experience. That's the experience of my life because I was forced to tap into something within that I never knew I had. And it was a source of limitless strength, right? With, with my mind, my spirit, my body, my emotions. And it helped me to connect to myself on a level I never would have otherwise. You, you've come out of prison with a, a completely new outlook. And you talk about the, the positives of prison and you've never mentioned in this interview a negative of prison. Do you ever look back and, and miss being in there or do you feel like your time served was just right and now you're ready to, you know, go on with your life? Yeah, I definitely don't miss it, man. Um, it happened perfectly, to be honest with you. The way everything unfolded was really uh, miraculous. I mean, from the way that I was arrested for a crime I didn't commit to how I was able to tap into something within myself that I had never known before and how it changed the way I was living and felt and thought um, to the to the extent that I was able to start doing positive things and, and educate myself in there and mentor people and get in the best shape of my life physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And then the way I left, getting those well wishes from the other inmates and having that moment, it was just honestly, it was perfect the way it all happened. Mm -hmm. I, I can imagine. Um, so when you come out of prison, obviously this kind of idea of you're a life coach now, this idea of life coaching, I imagine, stems from the seed of you mentoring these people in prison. When did life coaching become a reality for you outside of prison? Yeah, so, I mean, coming home poses its challenges too. Uh, I was so happy to be a free man and back with my family, but all these emotions were surfacing. Can I do this? Are people going to believe in me? Um, what if I, I can't do it? Like all the old fear and doubt that had plagued me early on in my life that prevented me from being the person I wanted to be it's always there, you know, it was there in prison too. And I just kept going in opposition, following my heart. And every time I did that, man, I would, I would just break through to this next level. And so early on, I knew I wanted to work with people. I wanted to start doing um, training at a gym and, and working as a personal trainer. That was my start. So about two months after being out, um, I had been working in the tree service again. I went and stayed on my uncle's property who had first given me that job back in high school to get my feet back on the ground. You know, they gave me a place to stay. And I was just with family, man, and just loving seeing everybody. But there was something inside of me that didn't feel right. Like I, I felt like I was really close to just slipping back into not necessarily the old lifestyle, but just steadily. Like I knew I had to keep progressing in my life. That was, that was really important for me. So about three months after being out, uh, I had secured a job at a gym. I actually connected with somebody I knew and he was a personal trainer and he would give me a job with him. So I didn't have to worry about the background check and all that. He was hiring me as an, an employee and, and helping me get clients. So I started, uh, well, let me tell you a good story about that. So um, I'm doing the tree work. I'm not really, I, every day I'm at that job, I feel like I'm letting my dreams slip away. And this has only been two months, man. I've only been out two months. I just did almost six years in prison. But this is the like the energy that was inside of me. This is how much I wanted that life. 
that vision that I had been entertaining for five years. I knew I didn't want to do the tree work. I knew I didn't want to settle for this mediocre life. And I felt like that's what was happening. So uh, I wanted to go and, and move back to Santa Barbara and start training people. And in order to do that, I had to get certified as a trainer. I had to do all this coursework, write essays, take an exam and stuff like that before I'd be allowed to train people. Well, one weekend I go snowboarding with my cousin. He offers uh, an opportunity for me to go snowboarding. And I broke my shoulder. I broke my shoulder snowboarding, just going way too extreme. And so now here I am back, you know, at my uncle's property in a sling. I can't work. I can't make money. Um, I'm just stagnant. And I was like, oh my gosh, man, what's going on here? And so um, right when that happened, you know, these fires broke out and they started burning down the city that I was in. They started burning down the county. It was one of the worst fires that we've had here. And my uncle's property almost burned down. So we had to evacuate. And it was insane. I mean, we're running through flames, making sure his house is still standing. The whole hillside, the whole area that he was living in was up in flames. And it was really intense. So his house survived. His house survived. And um, we're just trying to, like, get put the pieces back together. You know, this is such a tumultuous time. Here I'm only two months out of prison. Now we're fighting these fires and being displaced and everything. And then two days later, it rains. These torrential rainstorms cause mudslides. And these mudslides shut down the roads. They shut down the freeway from where I was staying to Santa Barbara. And it actually uh, ended up killing a lot of people. So they, they went through people's homes. I mean, the whole like mountain collapsed on these homes and it was horrible, man. People lost their lives. So now I'm in, in Ojai, Ventura County, south of Santa Barbara where I grew up. And I'm in a sling. The US 101 um, freeway is shut down because of these mudslides. I'm staying at this Airbnb because my uncle's property was burned and they were doing repairs around the house. And it was so much adversity, man. I'm two months out of prison, you know? So what I did is I went and locked myself in the computer room for two weeks and I did all of the coursework to be a certified personal trainer. And when I was in prison, I had been getting books sent in. So I knew all this information verbatim. I didn't even have to read the books. I didn't have to do anything. I wrote all the essays. You're required to write 500 words per essay. I wrote a thousand because I love this stuff. I love sports medicine and physiology and everything. So I got certified in two weeks. It normally takes people six months. Um, and then I called my friend. I said, hey, I'm certified. Like, I want to start. You know, I got to get out of this place. There's nothing going for me here. So I still had the dilemma of how am I going to get into Santa Barbara? Um, the U.S. 101 shut down like that's Otherwise, you have to go up and around through Northern California five hours. So I called up a friend of mine who was a pilot and um, he had a little single engine Cessna and I just was kind of shooting the breeze with him. He told me he had been flying down to my area every day to pick up his boss or once a week. His boss worked at a, a big hotel in Santa Barbara and I asked him if I could catch a ride. So that Monday I took a bag down there with me to the airport and I jumped in this little plane and we flew up over the mudslide. And on the way into town, I'm telling him about my job. I'm excited. You know, he's asking me how I've been. And I told, he asked me where I'm going to stay. And I said, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't have a plan for that yet. I'm just, I'm just going for it, you know? And I had a little money in my pocket. Um, I had a bag of clothes and that was it. And so he tells me, hey, my dad has a, a room for rent. Maybe you should hit him up. Maybe I'll call him when we get in town. And so we got into Santa Barbara and I went to the gym where I was meeting, you know, my future boss at. And uh, we walked around. I met the owner of the gym. Everything was good. I was set to start the next day. I had clients already waiting. And uh, here we go. Right, This is my opportunity. 
Then I drove with my friend to meet his dad for the first time and he had a room. So I gave him all my money. I gave him all my money to secure my first month's rent. Now I had a place to stay, but I didn't have transportation. So my uncle who I was working for, his mechanic lived in town. He had told me to, to contact him. Maybe he had a beat up car I could borrow or buy or something. He always had cars he was fixing up and selling. So I went to meet him and he had a couple cars and I couldn't afford them. Then he had one car, it was a Honda Civic. The whole rear end was just smashed in. It had been an accident. There was no trunk. It was like all the way up to the back seats, man. Mm -hmm. He's like, here, you could drive this thing around. Give me like a thousand bucks for it when you have money or whatever. And now I had a car, man. And that thing was so horrific. Like <laughs> you don't want to be seen in this car. You don't want to be that guy. But I had a vehicle. I had transportation. I didn't care. And when I would go to the gym, I'd park it around the corner. So no one see me would see me getting in and out of it. Right. But in 24 hours, I had a new job that offered a new opportunity to pursue my vision. Uh, I had a place to stay and I had a vehicle, man. So that was how I got my start as a trainer. That's how my, my entrepreneurial journey started mm -hmm. that day. Uh, and then, so that, that's your, your entrepreneurial journey. Tell, talk to me where you're at now. So you've gone from working out the, the back of a, a, a working out of a, a, you know, broken Honda Civic, uh, almost wishing on a prayer to get to a place to be a PT. Um, talk to me about how you're teaching people to, you know, you're coaching people on life now. Yeah, so I was uh, training people at the gym and that was going well. It gave me an opportunity to just get in front of people and, and start helping them and connect with them. But really early on, I realized, okay, like there's a, there's a limit here of what I can do. Like I'm only allowed to reach so many people. I'm only able to help so many people. And I wanted to create my own company. I wanted to create my vision. So um, I left that gym and I started working for myself. I, I was a personal trainer. I started my own company. And I started getting clients pretty quickly. And all the while I was uh, really pushing my own body too. So people saw me on social media. I was doing triathlons, marathons. You know, I did like a 32 mile run and I just came out of prison and people were like, what's this guy doing? He's running 32 miles. He's already a trainer. So they started reaching out to me. They were kind of intrigued by what I was doing. And I just started connecting with people. So I was having success doing that. And then I still had that feeling though. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm doing my thing. Like I got my own company, but working as a trainer in a gym, I'm, you know, I'm stuck in that like hourly rate, right? Not rate, but that hourly, um, you know, training time for money, training my time to help people. I can only help so many people in a day. How many hours am I going to train? If I do 10 hours a day, that's 10 appointments, but that's still not a lot of people. And that's a lot of time and energy. So uh, I knew I wanted to expand. I didn't know how to do that. And then I met I met somebody in Santa Barbara, just happened to see him at a coffee shop and we saw, we started talking um, and he was a coach for coaches. You know, he taught me how to create an online business and to connect with people all over the world and reach them and how to build an online business and something that would, you know, serve people. So I started working on that and I was, I was really excited about that. Um, but I was still just doing the fitness stuff. And so when COVID hit, the gym shut down and I was doing half my time in the gym, half online. And I just reflected, man. I was just sitting there reflecting one morning thinking, okay, the gyms are shut down. Like this is a really tough situation for a lot of people, including myself. Um, at this time I had a young baby. I had a wife. I had another son. Like I had a family to take care of and um, half my income was taken away. Half my clients were, you know, 
being restricted from me. So that's when I realized that I was just holding back. That's when I realized that I had been holding back that what I went through in prison and what I learned and how I overcame it and um, like reinvented myself and the, the things I was able to do could massively impact the world, man. And by me playing small and just working out of the gym and not really sharing that experience with people and, and doing what in my heart I knew I could do that was help people to change their lives like on, on a massive scale that I was, that I was holding back and that wasn't going to help people. I was doing them a disservice. So I decided I was just going to go all into being a life coach and sharing my story and to, to work with people in a, you know, a deeper capacity. And that's what I did right in the beginning of COVID. And my business took off, man. I started connecting with people, sharing my story. And I think at that time, a lot of people could resonate with it because what they were going through. And I had been talking about my story, but I just didn't hold back. I started talking to people about the truth, about, you know, how we hold back because of fear and doubt. And we let our limiting beliefs um, dictate the way we live our lives. And everyone can relate to that, you know, walking around knowing that there's more for you, but you're holding back and that feeling inside where you're not being the person that you want to be. It devastates people. And I don't want anybody to get to the end of their life and experience the regret that I experienced in the county jail. Thank God I was 23 and I had an opportunity to do it right this time. A lot of people don't get that opportunity and that regret will devastate you. Because the truth of the matter is we always have this desire. We always have this intuition of what we want to do in our lives and who we envision becoming. But most people never pursue that with everything that they have. Most people either, you know, kind of give a little bit, but they allow the fear and doubt to hold them back. And they listen more to the fear and doubt. And right, those decisions over time create this life that they don't even love, a life that they actually resent, that they complain about, a life that causes them to numb themselves with drugs and alcohol a life that leads to like pain, man, and misery. So my mission is to reach those people before it's too late, share my story, help them through my program, my coaching process, and help them to live the life that they love and cherish. Absolutely outstanding. I'll, I'll let you go very soon because we've been talking for a while, but it feels like we, you know, we have only scratched the surface of this, you know, kind of revelation that you went through. Um, and just to say as well, your, your story that you're talking about in book form, Prison of Your Own, is out in January. Um, okay. As a final question, as a, as a nice note to end on, uh, you know, the start of your story was filled with a lot of anguish and a lot of hardships that you had to deal with. And it's not a unique story, really. There were a lot of people going through the same situations where... They're, they're having family problems and they're having a hard upbringing. If you could speak to those people, what would you say now? The, the young people who are like a young Sean Crane. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a really tough place to be in, you know, and I had a lot of people trying to open my eyes and talk to me and I wasn't hearing it, you know, so I hope that those people don't have to go through something like I went through to get to, to open their eyes and to see that there's a different way to live. But what I would tell them is just don't ever quit and give up. Like no matter what you go through and how devastating a moment in your life could seem, it's not gonna be like that forever. Like you can change and your life can change, but you can't quit or give up on the person deep down in your heart that you wanna be. So in every waking moment, you're gonna be challenged with decisions, right? Do I follow my heart and keep fighting and, and hope and pray that life can get better? Or do I just allow it to beat me down and allow the fear and doubt to pull me in this other direction, right? So no matter what you're going through, you have a choice. 
when I was in prison, I had a choice. I could have done drugs. I could have hung out with the wrong guys. I could have just warped my mentality and come out just a completely ruined individual. But I chose to, to push myself to become this person in my heart I always wanted to be. So even in the most dreary of circumstances, you have a choice and you have the power. But when you give up that power by listening to the fear and doubt, now you're a victim, right? But when you fight through it and you believe that something greater is there for you and that you take small actions every day, no matter how trivial they may seem to move towards that vision, you are still holding on to power and you are empowered to change your life because of that. Fantastic. Sean, thank you so much for sitting down and speaking to me. And um, yeah, I appreciate, you, man. appreciate your time.